Unfortunately, we live in a very judgmental world. It's very easy to judge other people. And people that are so-called criminals and addicts are at the lowest rung on the ladder. A lot of people say, why bother? Who cares? What a bunch of junkies and crackheads and people that commit crimes they deserve to burn in hell. Or I've, I've heard it all. And so we believe that these people, they deserve another chance. They're just like us. And we also believe that, if, that we're all one. And if we're going to rise together in consciousness, we can't leave one demographic behind. Welcome, everyone. My name is Kapil Guy, and you're tuned in to the Finding Perspective podcast, where we share stories and get into deep conversation with the intent of educating our listeners to new insight, new ways of thinking, and of course, new perspectives. Welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thank you so much, Kapil. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you have quite an eventful and interesting story. So I'm not sure to begin, but one place where I'd like to start is your journey that eventually led into your book, Joy Is Your Only Job. I believe your story starts off somewhere in Western Canada, and that's all I'm going to say, and I'll let you <laughs> take it from there. That's, that's, that's funny because... Even my story seems like so big and it's kind of like, where do I start? And part of me wants to be like, you know what? You should just ask me questions, but I can give you a, a nutshell version and then you can ask sure, questions from there sure, if that sure. works. Cool. So I was born and raised in Edmonton, Alberta and prairie girl here. And uh, at 15, I, I, I thought my life was boring. You know, I had a really good life up to that point. Um, my family was... My parents are still together. There was never any substance abuse issues, financial issues, nothing like that. And I share that because a lot of people say, oh yeah, well, of course that makes sense. Of course, because you broke up, you grew up in a broken home, poverty, you know, makes sense why you went the way you did. So I share that because my everything was great. It's just I thought things were boring at 15. And so I ended up meeting guys that were in a gang. And you know, it might be one of those questions of like, how does a 15 year old just who grew up in a good home, you know, land into the hands of gangsters? So I hung out with the guys and that continued on until when I was 16 years old. And at 16, I met a guy. Actually, before I get into that, at 16, um, there was a guy that I knew and he brought me to this apartment and he had left the apartment that night. He said he had to go somewhere else. And I was in the room. Long story short, I was raped that night by 13 guys. And then that destroyed me in some ways, but I also felt it was normal in that world. So I, you know, kind of picked up the pieces, carried onwards. And then at 17, I met a guy who I didn't know was a gang leader at the time. I got together with him. I had already left home. So I thought, you know, I got to save face. I can't go back to mom and dad now and say, hey, come take me back. So we were together. I was still in high school. And I found out through the news because he was wanted on a Canada wide warrant at the time. His face was like on the six o'clock news. I was like, geez, okay. And actually he didn't know he was wanted. He didn't know that. So apparently the police were following us and I was arrested with him January of 99. And that was my whole start into this world with him and deeper into that, that side of, I guess you can call the criminal world. 
And it was abusive from the get-go pretty much. But he was incarcerated. So he went to jail two weeks after we met. I was released. I, the police let me, let me go. I was still considered a minor. They let me go. And our relationship continued. And basically, he called me from jail and one day and he said, do you want to be my girlfriend? Like, just like that. Haven't dated, haven't like nothing. And I was like, well, I'm thinking I had nothing else to do, so why not? Right? So I'm like, yeah, sure. So from that day forward, he called me baby and like that was it. We were together. And about a year after that, a year and a half, he had proposed from behind bars. And we got married when he was in prison. Actually, he got transferred to a federal penitentiary. We got married there, conceived our first child there. Again, the abuse continued. And by 23 years old, I was pregnant with, I had a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and pregnant with my third and finishing a university degree at the same time. So that was a pretty, pretty chaotic time in my life. And, you know, I, again, when you, I found like the deeper I went into that lifestyle, I became desensitized to things. I wasn't phased by the amounts of money that I saw. I wasn't phased by seeing these weapons that came in or drugs that came in or people that were murdered. It was just part of the life. And so it was really interesting because growing up as a so-called really, you know, good girl, good home, I was now retraining my brain to think and behave and act and make decisions completely different. So we were in Edmonton, we moved to Vancouver, and then we moved out to Ontario, so out to Toronto, and we had the three kids. And then in 2010, he had tried to kill me. So he was the jealous and controlling type. And I was working as a caregiver two nights out of, well, the whole week, but two nights out of the week, I would sleep over at this old lady's house take care of her. He called me back one night, said one of the girls was hurt. That was his excuse to get me back home. I came back home. He punched me in the face. I was knocked unconscious. Actually, he he punched me in the face and he choked me unconscious twice. So he was like 6'1", 270 pounds. People mm. thought he was a football player. So big guy, mm. didn't bother to try to fight him. And it was interesting because when I came to, the room was spinning and the front door was there. So it's like freedom was, I could have just ran. Yeah. And for a while he blocked the door. And after he's like, just go, you can go. But I'm and thinking, I can't, exactly. I'm like, my three kids are sleeping upstairs. There's no way I'm going to leave them. I'd rather suffer with whatever's happening right now than right. leave them. So he took a eight inch stainless steel kitchen knife. He came around the corner very slowly and he... Um, he put the knife on top of my head. I remember just saying, I hope this doesn't hurt too much. Like in my head, I was thinking, wow, like this scene right here, like this living room is the last scene I'm going to see before I die. That's it. Life is over. And knowing my kids were upstairs, like that hurt so much. And so I, I shut my eyes and I just hoped that it wasn't going to hurt too much. And I felt the knife go in and out of my head, like my scalp. And that was a really creepy feeling. And when adrenaline is pumping through you so much, it protects you. You don't feel the pain. So I didn't know the extent of my injuries. And he had stopped suddenly. He left the house. I ran upstairs. I grabbed my kids. I grabbed toys and blankets. And as I was out the door, we had a sliding door mirror. And I saw purple and red dots all over my face. They call them petechiae. 
And then my neck had cuts on them and I was bleeding everywhere. And every time I would move my hands through my hair, like hair would fall out because of the knife. And then I had pieces of enamel. Like I was crunching on pieces of enamel from my teeth in my mouth. It was like disturbing actually. Okay, so <laughs> quite, quite, quite the story, and I just want to read that. Re- of course, re- yeah, please do. Uh, we're gonna get into everything that you yeah. just said, um, everything, but uh, I want to just rewind quite a bit. So, I want to start with your family. Sure. Um, so, were your parents were they born and raised in Canada? No, my mom is from Peru. My dad is from Malaysia. They met in Vancouver, Canada. Okay, and then moved to Edmonton. Did you have some sort of angst towards your family? Is that why you, did you feel that you wanted to get away or what was, what, what was that? What was that dynamic like? My dad wasn't a communicator. He, to this day, he's still not a communicator. Right, like he's right. not very good at it. Right. But I've always been closer to my mom. And so I, I didn't feel, I mean, I guess it's typical teenager stuff, right? Where you resent yeah. your parents for the rules they instill, but I just wanted more, like, I thought I lived too much of a straight and narrow life. Right, right. That was it. There was no drama happening at home. It was just out of boredom. Why Why do you think boredom can lead to crime? I mean, I understand that people are bored. Like, they, it's one thing to be mischievous. And it's one thing to be a teenager and to just do, you know, teenage things. But crime, a life of crime is, you know, it's kind of taking that to another level. Yeah. Why do you think boredom can lead individual in your case to go into a life of crime boredom you have your mind it's just you and your mind you got you're just thinking right Mm. like i mean i think of guys in in prison which we can talk about afterwards but guys in jail that have only time on their hands right what do they do they think so the boredom um i think too coupled with not just that but growing up in edmonton i always considered edmonton at this like big black hole and if there's any Edmontonians listening to, listening to this, <laughs> I still love you. And so, so we're not saying Edmonton is a boring not, place. Just in case you're listening, Edmonton <laughs> is not boring. You guys have a nice mall. Uh, yeah, and uh, a nice <laughs> river valley. <laughs> so, and and this there is a truth to it because growing up, people would say anyone over 18 in Alberta, you would drink or you can go to the strip bars. There wasn't much more to do. Right. And actually, when I did my TEDx talk, I had addressed some of that because if teens don't have, you know, enough activities to do, they, you know, start doing other things, right? Just right. naturally. So, but to add to to what we're talking about, I also grew up a very shy girl and almost actually practically mute. So mm. when I talk to my friends nowadays, they say, Jess, you did not speak like at all. And if we came back to say, what did you say? You would just go quieter or you would just right. cry. And so I, I share that too, because when I, you know, Edmonton being a, a big city capital, but also a, quite a small city, you pretty much knew everyone in some way. <laughs> Did they know about what you were doing? Did they know about these, these, these behaviors that you were getting yourself into or perhaps the people that you were hanging out with? Not at first. No. So there was this thing called Asian Avenue back in like the nineties. Okay. So anyone that was basically Asian Canadian, Asian American would go onto this online forum and we would all connect. And the people that were in Canada were mostly in Ontario. And it's funny enough, people would say, North York, North York. And I'm like, where the heck is this place yeah. called North York, right? <laughs> and there was hardly anyone from Edmonton. So, so to see somebody else from Edmonton on there was rare. And if they were, you wanted to know who they were, right? We were already a small community. So... You know, that was the days of the dial-up. And I remember being in, in the office 
in the family home. And I told my mom that I was you know, going to talk to a friend online. So basically I lied to her. She didn't know I was talking to a guy. I basically met online. He was in house arrest for being part of a stabbing that was that year's probably most famous murders in Edmonton. Mm. Did, so did you know about this? I did. So <laughs> did this not scare you? Like no, no part of it. Scared no, you. it just no all fear. intrigued me. Okay. It just all intrigued me. And one, I found out he, that he was part of it because these two girls I went to school with, I don't know, don't ask me how they found out, but they said, hey, this guy is on Asian Avenue and you maybe you want to connect with him. They're kind of like egging me on, right? So sure, yeah, why not? So I connected with him and my parents had no clue until, I don't even know what the turning point was for them when they realized I was getting into stuff because as a teen, we think we're getting away with right. things, but we're really not. But I know there was a point when I was 15 and my mom said, listen, and 16, she said, if you're going to keep going down this route, I'm going to send you to Vancouver. You can stay with your aunt until you can prove that you're a good girl, quote unquote, good girl again. So I went to Vancouver for, for six months and I couldn't stand it. <laughs> it was too good for me, but I got used to that lifestyle. And I said, you know what? I'm good now please let me come back. She let me come back to Edmonton. And then of course I continued. I went back into that lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So my parents did different types of interventions. And my yeah. mom went to the high school and talked to the high school police officer, the liaison. Right. It worked, but it didn't work. And I was very stubborn and I continued to hang out with these guys. What, what about siblings? Do you have any siblings? Younger. Younger? One younger, like five years younger. Sister, did your sister know what was happening? What, what, what She saw things because she saw the me leaving the house. Yeah. And I know that wasn't a good, I wasn't a good role model for her, you know, being her older sister, but I would leave the house. And then I had one guy come over one time and she told my parents and I got so mad at her. And my dad started videotape, uh, not videotaping me, tape recording my calls. So one day I was looking for something in their room and I saw a black tape recorder there. And I was so mad that when I left the room, he was coming up the stairs and right. he had this look like, oh shoot, I was, I've just been found out. And he slapped me across the face. And that was the first time my dad ever touched me, like ever put his hands on me. And I couldn't believe it. I cried and I ran out of the house and got help, went to go get help. Like, I just thought, I mean, help in that, like, mm. I need to run away from him. I ran to a neighbor's house and right. stayed there. What impact did this have on your younger sister? That's a good question. Cause I think about where she's at today and her and I don't have a close relationship. Do you think it's because of? A big part of it. This? Yeah. Because I was gone, right. I was not there as her older sister. Mm. So leaving the house at 15, 16, 17, she's five years younger. We were close growing up and then I was just gone and I, and I never returned home since. So I feel like that's a part of it. And because I grew up fast, I always thought that she was immature. And so we never just, we never built that relationship. I still am in communication with her maybe once every three months now. How it shaped her, I'm not sure though. Yeah, that's something... I think one day I'd have a conversation okay. with her and ask her. Well, hopefully, hopefully after this podcast, you could, uh, you could, yeah. you, you could re-engage in that. 
Okay. Well, that, that that's uh, that, that's definitely interesting. Um, you know, and because I mean, for me, I, I have two older sisters, and like I can't even imagine you know going a week without talking to them. Yes, we're all in the GTA. Yes, we're all you know close in proximity. Right. I can't even imagine. Like I have family members who like my dad who doesn't even talk to his sisters. Who's it's sad to see in like family members that don't communicate communicate i understand everyone's life is different everyone goes through different things and that's i that's what this podcast is about is to let the let the listeners see the guest's point of view or to see my point of view and to see what it shapes someone to do what they're doing today why they're doing what they're doing but you know during this entire time you know you you said you were in this relationship turned into a marriage and you knew I, i guess you had a feeling of what type of person this man was did you ever not feel like, man, this is not safe for me. Like I need to get out. What am I doing here? For sure. I knew that it was a dangerous lifestyle. And I think because right from the get-go, he said, and I mean, right from the get-go before he even asked me to be his girlfriend, he said, there's two things I want you to know. I never want you to hear, I never want you to say the word no. And I never want you to say that you're leaving me. That didn't scare you? at. I was kind of like, uh, okay, but knowing his position, knowing where he was and how much he was feared. He wasn't just someone where I can say, well, screw you, I'm, I'm leaving. I felt like I was trapped. And so I continued in that lifestyle. And again, I wanted to save face. I couldn't go back. I couldn't go back to my parents' place. And. But what would have happened? Like if you had gone, I'm just wondering, like, what would you have feared if you had gone back to, to your parents' place? What do you think would have happened? If I went back to my parents' place? Yeah. Oh, geez, I can't even fathom having gone back. But if I did, if I did, I guess my parents would have just either kept me or sent me back to Vancouver or I would have stayed with my friends. And I don't know, that's, that's hard to think back, like if, mm-hmm. if that was to happen, because I'm glad I didn't go back, you know, and I can't imagine any other way. So it's hard right. for me to answer that. Okay. And, and that's cool. So looking back, you know, at the age of 18, 19, and when you had thought about your future, did you think that, you know, this is a life for me, I'm going to be, you know, married to a gang leader for the rest of my life. And I'm going to be working in this, or I'm going to be living in this world. Or did you ever think that, no, things are going to change at some point. This is not what I'm going to be doing. Even though you stayed, did you ever think that I knew that I would stay in the lifestyle. I knew that when I was with him and married him at 18, that I would be with him. I didn't have plans to leave him. I actually saw us getting older with our kids, having grandkids, all that stuff. Because we had a lot of genuine, loving times. It wasn't like I despised him Mm -hmm. or hated him, anything like that, right? And so the crazy thing is, and it's funny because people can't think it's funny. He was very supportive of me having a post-secondary education. Right. And I was just about to get into that. Yeah. He, yeah, he was a big stand on me getting an education. So he wanted me to finish high school and then he wanted me to go into some kind of post-secondary. So I had aspirations of becoming a dentist and he said, okay, well, in the meantime, you know, while we're doing all this other stuff and there's a lot of logistics we have to figure out, why don't you go into dental hygiene and stuff like that? But before then I finished I went to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, which was very surprising for me because I didn't have the confidence. I didn't think I would get accepted. You know, I was already in that lifestyle. Who's? I didn't even bother to apply. I actually applied in Buffalo. Yeah. And I was like, maybe it's easier to get in there. And then something just hit, like, why not? Why not apply? What do I have to lose? And I got the acceptance letter to UBC and I couldn't believe it. So I 
got my degree in psychology and funny enough, criminology. So the time I was with him, I was studying the criminal mind (laughs) and I would bring back these books of what a psychopath looks like or what a sociopath looks like. And he would laugh and he's like, that's totally me. And that's me. And and I was like, wow, if people only knew, you know, it's kind of like a Jekyll and Hyde thing. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, No. So, okay. So you're, you're in school, you know, you're, you're still living, living this life. Um, Now, when you were in school, did that open up your mind to, to, to new possibilities or that did, did it ever click in maybe at that time that, okay, you know, maybe this, this life is just, maybe this is not it. Maybe like this, where I'm going with school, maybe this is going to lead me to right. other, other possibilities. Nope. <laughs> nope. I, I knew that I would, I was yeah. so clear to me, I would be with him. Yeah. And the thing is he, he wanted to get out at some point. Right. Yeah. So I knew that there was an end in sight Okay. and him and I had talked about him bringing us to a certain point and then he just wanted to be a stay at home dad. And then I would work, which right. I said, I was happy to do after all the years he was supporting me. You guys were living in Vancouver at the time. Yes. Like I said, he just wanted his property, his dogs, his kids. And I said, I, I'd totally be happy to go to work, mm. you know, do the nine to five thing and come home and support the family. And what was, what was that dynamic like with, with your children? Like what was your husband like in front of the kids and how did they view him as a father? One thing I can say is that he loved his kids tremendously and he was a very, very good father, despite what people might say like, oh yeah, how can he be a good father? Cause he was a drug dealer and all this stuff. He, when I said I would be with him and especially when we got married, he tried to keep me away from that lifestyle as much as possible because now those guys knew I was with him being his family. He had to keep us, you know, on the down low as much as possible. So whatever he brought home, like whatever he made, he always made sure like he provided for the kids. He brought the kids out. He treated them so well. And I think this came from him growing up without his biological father and having a dad that only came back to say, hey, deal these drugs for me. So he said, I never want to be like how my father was. And I, I think that's true with a lot of guys that have, you know, an absent father or so called broken home. So yeah, to answer your question, he was a very good father in front of them, played with them all the time, spent as much time as possible when he was home. And he did spend as much as he spent his time in the street. He also spent a lot of time at home. Well, I'm learning, I'm learning quite a bit. I mean, as we go on with this and um, this, the dynamics are just very, very, very intriguing. So your journey starts off in Alberta, your family shifts to, uh, to BC. Uh, what, so did you guys shift? Was it primarily because of your schooling reasons or was there any other factor it that was played for in? Sc- well, the main reason was we wanted to get out of Edmonton at that time. Edmonton was going through a big gang bust, if you want to call. Right. This is like late 99, early 2000s. The police had actually said that Edmonton, it was the worst year of violence they had ever seen up to that point. And the gangs were fighting a lot and they had, you know, cr- they had separated. There was a lot of murders that particular summer, it was absolutely crazy. So we said, we just need to get out of this. We need to get out of this energy. We need to start something new. So, and again, more opportunities as well in Vancouver with my post-secondary. So you guys spend some time in, in, in BC. Yep. Now your story then goes to Ontario. Yep. So tell me about that. How did you, when did you guys make that shift to Ontario? And for what reasons did you guys come to Ontario? You're going to love the answer to this. So so we were in Vancouver and at the time, 
So just before we moved to Ontario, he found out that the police were following him because they wanted to catch him on a murder case. Never, They never ended up catching him on that, but they were following us all the time. And he knew he had to stay low because of that. And he couldn't run his business at the level he was doing it. And it came down to a point where it was almost like a low point for him. It's probably the lowest ever that he had experienced in his career. And so it's funny I say career. And I was going to the university and he was taking care of the three kids at home. And he said, I don't know what to do anymore. He always talked about not wanting to rip people off. Like he always thought, I guess there's some kind of honor in some ways in that world, right? Some kind of. So he told me about his plans to rip somebody off. And actually I share this in my book. And so basically he had ripped someone off for 400 grand. And we had 400 grand sitting there in cash. I was like, okay, I've never seen a duffel bag full of cash like this before. And he says, I need you to take the three kids and go to Toronto. He had lived here before. So he said, there's more diversity there. Him being part Jamaican, he said, the kids need more people of color to look up to. He really, he was a big stand for that. So I booked a flight. I've never, up to that point, I was never east of the Alberta border, but I said, okay, let's do this. No family here, new start. And then he followed afterwards. He drove with our stuff and the money. And what year was this that you guys moved out here? 2006. 2006. Okay. So 2006, you guys are, you know, living in Ontario, the the, the police following your family. I'm guessing that it kind of calmed down mm-hmm. from At some, there. some level, yeah. Some, some level. So it, it feels like things are kind of you know, getting better for the family. So the families, I guess you guys were, and you guys were, you know, feeling at home in Ontario, feeling, feeling good out here. Yeah. And then one night there was a big, a a big life-changing moment. Yeah. Take us, take us through that night and how the events had transpired. Yeah. So when I was saying earlier, I was working for uh, this, this lady as a caregiver and he was a very jealous and controlling type. And so when I came back, What happened actually, just as a little bit of a rewind, the place that I was working at, her son is the one that hired me and her son was well-to-do. So he had all these people come and do all this work at his farm, like a hundred acre farm. And so one of the guys there, he was this guy in construction, he became my shoulder to cry on and he knew about the things I was going through. And every day I'd see him, I would share with him about what I was going through at home and then I would go back home and be yelled at and belittled and called names and stuff. So there was a big contrast for me and I became closer with that guy. I didn't have intentions to go anywhere romantically with him, but we did get closer emotionally. And so he found our email exchanges and that night he I saw an empty bottle of liquor on the table, which he never ever drinks. And he came he to the door. He said, come inside. The girls are fine. I walked in and he said, look, is there anything that you need to get out? Because there's things I need to get out. And that was hard for me because I was so afraid to speak up in front of him and even tell him the truth. But I said, you know what? Maybe this is an opportunity. I'll, I'll say yes. And he says, have you been talking to another guy? He asked me questions and I said, yeah. And then the next thing I knew, he had punched me in the face and 
knocked off one of my glass glasses lenses and I fell backwards onto the sofa and he was choking me. And then that's when he broke a chair over me. But as, as I was being choked out, I had three thoughts. One, my parents would find my body here. Two, my children won't have their mother. And three, this isn't fair. I didn't get to do everything I wanted to do. And that third one became my catalyst for what I'm doing today. But it's amazing what processes through your brain if you, you think you're going to die, right? So that happened in really like microseconds. And then he had left and that was a big shock because I didn't know where he went. And when I came to, I got up slowly and then that's when he came from around the corner and that we had this white foyer ledge and he picked up this eight inch stainless steel kitchen knife. And the way he walked over to me was, you know, ever so slowly and so calmly and he did not even blink. And then that's when he came to me. And then as I shared, I thought this is the last scene I'm going to see. And he had stabbed me. But after he stabbed me, after he had stabbed me, he stopped suddenly. And that was a shock because I thought, like, what's going on? That's so weird. And I later found out it was because the rosary he was wearing, which typically you don't wear a rosary, but it was decked out in diamonds. It broke and he snapped him out of his rage where he was like, what the F am I doing? So I actually keep that piece and I've used that in talks and shared mm-hmm. with people, right? Because if it wasn't for that piece, I don't know if I'd be here. So I really believe there was this divine intervention. And I knew there was a gun in the house and I thought he went to go get it to either kill himself or he was going to finish me off. And I heard him leave the house with one of our cars and I took that opportunity to grab the kids and, and leave myself. So that's what happened that night. And I went to go get help. First, I didn't actually. I went back to my employer's place. I wrote a note saying, I'm so sorry. I had to leave. I'll be back in the morning for my 9 a.m. shift, right? Which is crazy. And I went to Shoppers Your Drug kids Mart. Were with you during my this kids time? were with me in the back seat. And I went to Shoppers Drug Mart, which is our big convenience store, or not convenience store, our, our drugstore. And I thought, I'm going to grab some bandages to bandage myself up. Like, I'm not going to the hospital because. When I was in Vancouver, around 2000, my son was born in 2004. So like 2004, he was still in his baby carrier. My husband had threatened to kill me. He didn't actually try, but he had threatened to kill me. And that was the first time. And I had gone to the police. And when I walked up the headquarters, I said to the front officer, who was a female, that my husband tried to kill me. And she said, do you have family in the city? And I said, yeah. Reality was I had a lot of family, but I said, yeah, I have an uncle. And she slid me the phone and she said, if you don't call your uncle right now, I'll have your kids taken away from you. Why? Why would law enforcement say something? I, I, don't, I don't even get that. Like I didn't tell, that, that was seriously our communication. She didn't ask me anything right. before that. That was just, and she said, I was crying. Like I was bawling. I was so scared. And she says, you have girlfriends for this. I'm not, I'm not a counselor. Right. I was like, a police officer and never mind, like a female police officer is telling me this, but right. the police. And I thought if anyone is going to help me, it's the police. And now they're telling me this. Right. So I, I thought, well, I don't want my kids taken away. So I'll call my uncle. I called my uncle, told him what happened. And I went back to the marriage and I thought, you know what? This is such a shame because there's so many women and men that go back to their partners because of some kind of loophole or something in the system that has failed them and they don't get out. Has that moment shaped how you view law enforcement? Do you view law enforcement 
perhaps negatively because of that moment? I did for a long time. I had a lot of resentment, you know, and up to that point, the police were the enemy, right? It was right. a bad thing. You know, you, you don't want to be a rat. You, the cops are the pigs. You never go to them. So that was a big step for me to even go to them for help. And he never, ever found out I went, by the way. And so I had this in the back of my mind, like, you know, I'm not going to swear on, on your show, but I had all these thoughts of law enforcement and, and I just left it as that. And I just thought, I can't trust them. So what, you know, fast forward to this recent incident, I thought, I'm not going to the police. I'm not going to report this and I'm not going to go get help because I can't afford to lose my kids. Right. So after this moment, now, how long did the marriage last after this, uh, the attack? this attack? Yes. So that was 2010. So that actually happened May, 2010. And the funny thing is, so this happened in Caledon, which is a separate jurisdiction from where we lived, which was Brampton. Yep. Okay. I know, I know exactly, I know exactly where this is. Yep. <laughs> so the Caledon police were, were informed of what happened to me. They said, because this happened in Brampton, that's a separate jurisdiction. So we're going to have to put you in touch with them. Oh my God. So Caledon didn't actually send over their reports. It was like a whole different... Yeah. So nothing happened to him at that time. So basically he wasn't arrested, even though it was reported. They basically took my report and they said, well, the most we can do is give you access to victim services, which will give you 10 sessions with a, a psychologist for free and access to something like Catholic uh, family services that can help your kids as well. So that could be another like story, but I, I took the counseling and I did the 10 sessions. And one of the psychologists that I really liked, she said, you know, what if you went to the police, not to report him, but just to say, if I was to report what happened in Brampton, what would happen to him? You know, just ask. And I said, maybe. So one day I was driving back to work and I had passed headquarters in Brampton ready pass. I said, nah, this is not happening. And I swear it was like something, some, again, divine intervention, something had taken control of my steering wheel and turned my car back around to uh, the station. And I went there and I, funny enough, I went in female police officer. So right away I'm like, oh my gosh, here <laughs> we go again. Oh my God. <sighs> this is not going to go too well. So I, re I told her what happened and she said, hang on, let me go. I'll, I'll come back. She came back and she said, I'm sorry. Now that the ball's been dropped, we have to go arrest him. I was like, no, you can't. You don't know who he is. He's going to kill me. She's like, I'm sorry, we have to go arrest him. So that's how he actually got arrested. And he didn't know that I was the one that called until later. He just thought I was on my way to work. We didn't try to get back together, but we thought at least for now, let's just stay together in the same home, raise the kids. And it just did not work out because I, every time I was washing dishes, I thought he was going to come from behind and stab me or shoot me. And I was actually dropping things around him. Like there was so much anxiety that I was dropping dishes and I was dropping just anything. And so I just realized I, I, I can't do this. So it was it was great in a way that he was arrested at the time he 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 was. Okay, wow. So this is um, quite a lot for for me to learn about. But uh, you know, you did do a TED, TEDx talk, um, yes, where you spoke about your marriage, spoke about you know what you had gone through. Um, 
one thing that I found interesting was you, you, your, uh, was your approach and your attitude towards being in this situation. You, you spoke about taking responsibility for being in the abusive marriage. Yeah. I definitely applaud you for, for taking that stance. But do you feel that whenever you, you go out there, you share the story, you speak about, you know, yourself taking responsibility for this situation, have you ever received any sort of flack or any sort of negative responses from other women? So have you ever, I'm just curious, have you ever gotten any type of flack um, for that, for right. saying those types of things? Not yet, not directly to me. And I don't doubt that that's out there if people were thinking that. I think that we live in a society where it's easy to blame the other person and not take responsibility, right? Because we think they're the ones that did something quote unquote bad. And we don't look at where we could take responsibility. And why I shared that was because I chose to leave home. I chose to hang out with that those guys. I chose to be in that lifestyle. So again, with everything comes a reaction, right? Like I had to take responsibility for what came with that world. If you're going to go there, then you have to accept what happens. And sure, it was terrible what happened. And I'm not excusing anything that he did or anyone else did that's against the law or considered harmful to other people. However, there is something called responsibility that each one of us has. And I believe that we each create our reality. And so I created that, you know, I attracted those circumstances. So, and just as easy as I did that, I could turn my life around and create something that I do want and something that is positive. That's a great way to put it. I mean, because I hope that whoever is listening right now, regardless of whatever situation that you're in, that you can see both sides of the coin and you can see that within a situation yeah. that, you know, from a negative comes a positive and how you can turn that around with your with your own actions. Right. I mean, everybody has a different situation and everyone has a different story, but I just hope that whoever's listening can take at least that little bit from from what we're talking about right now. Yeah, and whatever dark someone is going through right now, take that as an opportunity to grow and to learn from this opportunity. Because I believe that the universe keeps putting these situations in our lives until we learn a lesson. And we think like, oh, why do we have bad luck? Or why do I have this bad luck? Or why does this keep happening to me? Why do I find myself in the same hamster wheel and I keep spinning? There is a reason for that. And if we don't learn our lesson, it's going to keep showing up in our lives and it's there to serve us. And if we can see the gift that it really is, we can powerfully move forward. And then we have, guess what? A new lesson to learn. Yeah. And that's the beauty of life, right? Like, I, I think life, we're here to grow and to learn. It's not just handed a bunch of roses, like, you know, and like, <laughs> here, go enjoy life. Everything's supposed to be perfect. Yeah. And do you feel like if there's not a lesson to be learned, like, cause sometimes I feel like that there's no lesson to be learned here. Like, what am I doing here? I, sometimes yeah. I do feel that. Like, do you feel like, okay, if I'm not learning, if I'm growing some growing, like it, it kind of makes me anxious. Do you ever feel that as well? Yeah. For like anything. Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Like anything, yeah. In life, anything in life. Yeah. Because if something happens where I, I don't like it or something triggers me, I, I go inwards and I reflect, okay, okay. Why is this happening? Why is this happening? And again, that's taking responsibility and like looking at your, at yourself, like maybe I was negative two weeks ago. Like, I don't know, you know, and just, yeah. So, you know, you come out of a, um, you, you've come out of this marriage, you have three children with you. Now, what was your approach towards, you know, being in another romantic relationship? Did you want to be single? Did you just not want to think about it? Did you want to, you know, start dating? Like what, where, where were you at, at that point? Right after I had separated from yes, him? Yes, yes. 
you know, oh gosh, being married for so long, I don't know if you ever had this experience, but married when no, you're I'm not, in a, I'm not married. I've never been married. So no. <laughs> or if any like long, long, long term relationship, and then you think you're going to be with that person, and all of a sudden you try to jump into the dating pool again, it's very different, and you feel rusty. And I feel like the time I knew that I wanted to date eventually. I took some time for myself, obviously, to heal, but I knew I wanted to date, and I didn't know what to do because. I got married at 18, right, a very young age. And the funny thing is between the year 2000 when I got married to dating years, years later, you know, as technology, right? Like we have dating apps, we have, so everything was different. I'm like, I don't know etiquette anymore. Like I feel so out of place. So it was actually really funny. Like I felt like a teenager trying to learn things again. Yeah. And I was Googling stuff and I was taking like Matthew Hussey's course. I don't know if you know I, Matt, I know, Matt I, I know Matthew. Matthew Hussey is... Matthew is a very, very intelligent dude. And uh, I mean, I watch all his videos and yeah, no, Matthew Hussey is a good one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I was following him and I, I bought his books. I was reading all that stuff. And that how long has he been around for? How long has he been doing that stuff oh, for? I don't even know. Cause when was I start, started, which 2019. So I started reading his books like 2014, 13, 14. Oh, he's been around for that. For I, I only heard about him like maybe two years ago. Okay. Yeah. He's been doing this stuff for a while now. Okay. Yeah. He, so he's awesome. And I started dating and I, just knew that I wanted to remarry at some point. It's right. just annoying. Re, right. Just annoying. And it was funny because I jumped into this entrepreneurial journey and I thought, you know, I'm going to get my business to a certain point before I get married or before I go looking for this, this next guy. And then something just hit me. Like if you wait till then, you might be closing off the doors to the, right. the, the next guy. So, so you, you had mentioned, you know, you'd had faced your great deal of trauma all these anxieties, all this trauma. Um, how, what was your approach to love? Like, did you ever feel like you, you, you'd find love again? Like, did you, like, I, you wanted it, but did you feel like insecure about it in regards to meeting, you know, other, other men, other part, other perhaps potential partners and feeling that this fear that things could go wrong? Yeah. I was messed up to that point because my, my version of, of love or what I knew what love was, was, my experience with my husband. And also I was raped at 16. So I had felt like damaged goods. And plus I had three kids. So I felt like here's a woman who's been raped. So damaged goods, number one. And I bring all this baggage with three kids and I've been through what I went through. So like what man is going to love me with, with everything that I bring? So I had a lot of stuff running in the background and, and didn't feel very highly of myself. And so for me, it was just, you know, tossing around with dating and seeing what happens. Uh, he's, he's a great dude. Um, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, shout out. I think to I him. chose pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to him if he's listening. Did you feel insecure that your, you know, your past might come up and Michael might view you differently because of your previous marriage? And That was actually taken care of right from the get go because he had, he know, he knew my story and right from the beginning, he was always so reassuring and so loving. Like, even if I said like, oh, I don't know. Or even like, even if I talked about my stretch marks, like he was even talking about like the physical stuff, right? He would always just reassure me like that I was beautiful and, and perfect as is. And he accepted whatever had happened before. Sure, it was difficult for him to listen to, but he always poured on love. Mm -hmm. So he always created that safe space for me to just communicate whatever was there. And what do you think made him this type of person? What do you think it was like? Yes, he was a relationship coach, but 
Do you think it's something about his upbringing? That his made upbringing, him, definitely. Yeah, because yeah, he talks about how his parents were married almost 50 years and he always saw them loving and, you know, pinching each other's butts. And, you know, as a child for him, seeing that created, I guess, something in him where it's like, this is a loving relationship. And he knew that that's what he wanted. And from what I understand with all the many girlfriends he's had in the past, he's always been this communicator and this lover, like this loving person, you know, and people that know him know Michael for being a people person, mm -hmm. a loving communicator. So you guys recently just uh, celebrated your yeah. second year anniversary, right? Okay. Although he was in Brazil and I was there. He booked a trip and I'm like, uh, do you know you're going to be away? He's like, oh yeah. I'm like, you didn't think about that before. So you celebrate <laughs> over Skype or something like that? Not even. I think it was like one Zoom video or something. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are married and Michael is a stepfather to your, to your yes. three children. How how does that dynamic work? How does how do your children view Mike? Like, I mean, yes, they view him as, as their father, but tell me more about that. It was difficult at first because of the transition and they're, they were at an age where they can understand everything that's going on, right? I hear of stepfathers come in when the child is a baby or two, three years old, it's easier. But as they're approaching the teenage years and they're already set in their ways, it's, it's difficult. So I really commend him for not just taking on one child, but three kids. Three, yeah. Three kids. And... It was very challenging at the beginning because they didn't even, they couldn't even look at him. So he would come over and they would put their heads on the table and not want to speak to him. And he, again, kept, he was a stand for love and he would bring them stuff and kept talking to them. And eventually they came through. I feel like when we actually got married, having them a part of the wedding party and being there to celebrate with us, there was a shift and it was kind of like, okay, this is this is something that's really solid and we're a part of this and we're a family and they have taken to him so well. Like they get along amazingly. Sometimes I think, geez, I think you love them like more than I do. And which is like a joke, which like, of course I love my kids, but he is just such a stand for family and so loving. What's really beautiful is that you and Michael have created things together. You guys have created, within within the GTA, within Toronto, you guys have created a storytelling network where you guys operate a, uh, a monthly storytelling event right? known as Flip the Script. Yes. I've actually had the pleasure of speaking at, That's right. at, at Flip the Script. I, I want to know a little bit about the, about the history of Flip the Script, how it came together, and how you guys decided that you were going to create this. And it's it, it's a great partnership and I want to talk talk more about that. Sure. So I, as you said, I did the TEDx talk and when I did the TEDx talk, it wasn't actually the original talk I wanted to do, but the organizer said we had to shift things because it was too story heavy. But I knew after doing the talk that there was still this story, this version inside of me that breathed inside of me and needed to get out. And one day I was just sitting there and this download came and I was like storytelling community, which now we call a story sharing community, but story sharing community. What's the difference between the storytelling so and story sharing? From what I'm told is that the storytell there is a whole umbrella of storytelling right. people that can tell stories that aren't necessarily true. Whereas our community, it's all true stories, all true personal stories. So we decided to go with story sharing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's, that's news for me. Thank yeah. you. Okay. Yeah. So we, so we have the story sharing community and we launched that February 13th of 2019. And I remember that night asking the audience, cause I said, I don't even know if it's going past this night. Like this was just an idea. And they all raised their hands and wanted this to continue forward. So I said, okay, I guess we're doing March. And by March we had 
more than doubled in size, which was, which was crazy. And I said, okay, there's something here. And I just knew I wanted to create a space for people that were not professional speakers, people that maybe have never spoken in their lives, people that were shy like me growing up and, but knew they had a message to get out. And so flip the script was born. And again, even the term too, was like, I don't know, one day was like flip the script. That totally makes sense because you're flipping the narrative on your life and the way that you see your experiences from, you know, negativity or blame and shame and guilt and fear and doubt to something that's positive. So that's been born. I think we're doing our 10th event now or 11th event on Monday. So a few days away. And Michael is actually... I voluntold him to be the MC, so it's my creation. But I've oh, so him. he didn't he didn't come up with that. No, that was, that was, okay. No, so he's actually not a partner. I'm not yeah. like discounting him. Okay, okay. But I asked him as I knew that he's very good at the mic and a great MC. So I said, "Babe, would you MC?" And people loved him. So, so he's he's there as the the MC for the events. So I mean, I like to give some. You know, I, I like to you know give some. Feedback because I I am somebody who's attended Flip the Script as a guest. I have spoken at Flip the Script as right. a story share. So it's it's um then that's how we've met and that's how we eventually came together for this podcast. So one one thing that I really liked about Flip the Script is the uh, diversity of speakers and the different level of speakers. You know we have certain speakers that are you know a little bit more experienced. Yep. But then we also have speakers that are you know speaking for the very first time. Speak people who. Wouldn't even probably wouldn't even identify as a speaker, but they're coming out of rehab or they're sorry, they're currently in recovery. Yeah. Uh, individuals who are su- suffering from substance abuse. Yeah. So I really like that mixture of the different speakers of different levels coming together. And, uh, you know, I, I, it was one of the events that I spoke at. Um, There's a gentleman that spoke at, I don't remember his name and for confidentiality reasons, because he probably doesn't even want to be mentioned. So right. I wouldn't mention his name either. But, you know, he had shared a story of, you know, drug abuse and being homeless and how he came out of that. Okay. And it was his first time sharing it. But this, this, this guy just... He did such a phenomenal job. Yeah. And I like the fact that you're using, you know, the arts for people to come out of their, their, yeah. their darkness. So where I was going with this was, um, how did you come up with the idea of bringing experienced speakers and speakers, well, people who haven't even come up about speaking yet? And how did you go about bringing that together? And these, these people also who are speaking for the first time. Have you have have they since decided to continue speaking? Well, the intention first was for non-professional speakers to get together, but just naturally it drew in people that have experience because I want another platform to speak on. Which fair enough, um, you know we don't turn them away. And the guys, we created the platform for the public to be aware of what Flip the Script is about, right? Because we have a bigger mission and vision behind. You know, it's not just the story sharing community. So the guys that are in the program, so our Flip the Scripts program, they came out of, or they're still in the rehabilitation center. And then when they come out, they or they're still in there, they have a platform to speak. So by having this public, public space, they're given this opportunity to share their message from the stage powerfully instead of just the rehabilitation center. So your other question was about the guys, the uh, continuing onwards, there have been, there's at least one guy that continued to go on to teaching, not teaching, but speaking in front of uh, high school one or two times. And then I think he did something else he was asked to speak at as well. And 
it's been really interesting just to see the breakthrough though, because it's one of those things where I'm sure if you remember too, because you've spoken quite a bit, but your first time speaking on a public stage, right, is very nerve wracking. It is. But there's a breakthrough on the other side. And so it's really been really cool to see these guys step over that line and then have the confidence now to, okay, what's the next thing? And now they're open to speaking again or speaking at a school or now I want to motivate youth. So that's been really cool. That's come out of this for them. How does that feel? How does that feel you could do that for somebody else? Oh, it's so rewarding. I mean, first of all, flip the script. We're not the only, we can't take credit for like a hundred percent of what, you know, of somebody's growth. Cause I, there's so many things that they do as well, but it's very rewarding. It's, it's, I, I don't even know if I can put it in words. Like every time I leave a session with them or even t- every time I leave, you know, visiting guys in jail, I feel so lit up. Like I'm dancing in the car literally because I'm, I'm, People say I give to them a lot and I do, but I get so much more in return. Right. Um, and, you know, are, what do you, so for these, for these people who are perhaps in the beginning stages of speaking, yeah. how do you help them prepare for their, their talks, their speeches? The people, well, the guys, you yes. mean? So the guys have gone through our program where they get the structure of how to put something together. And it's an eight week program and they get to reflect on things that have happened and take responsibility. Here comes that word again, right? Take responsibility instead of seeing their experiences as something that happened to them. So that's cool because they come from a different angle right? and they can speak from that now, right? And, and share with people what that gift is in their, in their pain and then now share that with other people. And then that becomes inspiring, right? It's just the snowball of, we don't, it's come to the point where we don't have to tell the other guys what Flip the Script is about. They just know, right? The other guys that haven't been part of our program that are in the rehabilitation center, they're like, when are you guys coming back? Cause we heard amazing things from the other guys. I want right. to be a part of this. When are you starting? Right now what's, was really great is because being a story share, being a speaker in the community of Toronto, I've been to tons of different story sharing events, storytelling events, public speaking right. events, bunch of Toastmasters events. So I've kind of like seen all ends of the, of the spectrum and yep. you know where people fit in. So as you, as you as well, have been to other other speaking events, and you know when you when you see other people from other events come to yours, how does it make you feel that you're now part of the storytelling? Sorry, the storytelling story sharing community. Like you're actually, um, you know, one of the big players within the city of Toronto. How does that make you feel? You know, it's funny you ask. I have not even thought about it that way. Like when you say like one of the players in the, I'm like I don't know. I'm just so focused on what Flip the Script is doing that I think it's me reflecting on it right right now. I I mean, it's an honor to be a part of that. And everyone has their different communities and everyone serves, has has their own agendas and demographics who they serve and all that stuff. So um, yeah, just to answer your question, I I just feel an honor to be a part of it. And, uh, but like I said, I'm so focused on what we're doing that, I mean, it's cool. Like I just spoke at Mo Mondays, right? Just recently, again, I returned to the stage after five years to Mo Monday stage. So it's cool to be able to support the other platforms as well, right? Because again, they're, they're different. I don't see them as competition because again, everyone has their own people that they serve, right? And, and, our, and ours is very unique in itself. So now that we've gotten a little bit of information on Flip the Script, what is the what is the vision for Flip the Script? So 
Let's start with a mission. So first with a mission, we are here to help close the gap of how society perceives so-called criminals and addicts. So unfortunately, we live in a very judgmental world. It's very easy to to uh, judge other people. And people that are so-called criminals and addicts are at the lowest rung on the ladder, right? They're like, a lot of people say, why bother? Who cares? What a bunch of junkies and crackheads and and people that commit crimes, they deserve to burn in hell. Or I've, I've heard it all. And so we believe that these people have a gift. They deserve another chance. They're just like us. And we also believe that if that we're all one. And if we're going to rise together in consciousness, we can't leave one demographic behind, right? But again, there's all this judgment and there's so much healing that's needed. And Flip the Script specifically supports men. I'm all about women's empowerment, but at the same time, we can't leave guys behind. And my experience working with men personally and professionally is that men have keep so much pain inside. They don't talk about it. There's all this emotional stuff, even with their parents, their siblings, even with their wives. I've heard guys tell me, I can't even tell my wife this, mm. but they're suffering in silence. But when you give a man that space, that safe space and non-judgmental space to open up, like it's incredible. It's incredible what comes out. And when I sit in the jails and listen to these guys' stories, I say, I wish there was a camera here right now so that the public can see, hear your stories, can see where you're coming from. That's where we can build understanding and tolerance and acceptance of one another. That is very, very beautifully said. Um, and what I, I want to talk on your point, you know, we often view inmates and uh, people with a cr criminal history or people who are, you know, have a, have substance addictions. We often view them with a very certain perspective. Yes. We view them with a very negative perspective. Totally. How have you been able to show so much empathy towards people in this, in this situation, given that all that you've been through, all that you've seen, um, how do you still have it in you to have, have that empathy or... Yeah, and yeah, I'd like to know more about that. How do you have that empathy? How, where, did, where does this come from? Because I grew up as the underdog. Yeah. I know what that's like to be overlooked and to be shunned and to, to you know, I had people that told me you're not going to amount to anything because of who you're involved with, you know, and I actually had a family member, not direct family member, but a relative that told me this. And I took that and I said, you know what, you know, screw you, I'm going to show you right. something else. So being with my husband as well, I got to see another side of him, whereas in the newspapers, on the streets, he was seen as this enforcer, people feared him, but I saw someone that had a big heart and I understood where, why he ended up the way he did, because he started off in a life of crime since the age of 12. Again, I told you about his, you know, and he went foster home to foster home. He was beaten as a child. Not, again, not to excuse anything he did, but I had compassion. And so many of these guys have similar stories where I've met, I can't even tell you how many guys that have left home when they were young boys because they would rather avoid the, the violence at home. And then they went onto the streets and became, you know, part of a gang or got into a life of crime. Can you blame someone? You know what I mean? There are circumstances that they were under and they, they, they had to make a choice at the time. So mm -hmm. I forgot what your question was now. I don't even remember, <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
You know, no, I, I don't even remember what I asked, to be honest. Oh, I was just talking about the empathy and, um, you know, yes. how, you, how you have empathy towards people in these situations. Yeah. And you know what? I always tell people some of the most brilliant minds that I know are people behind bars. And we don't get to see that. We, society, doesn't get to see that. And when I went to visit my husband in, in jail, in prisons, in and out through the years, I saw the, the talent, the, the, I saw artists that came out. Uh, wordsmiths that would come out. And I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Like if these people were in a gallery or in a book, like they would be on the big stages making a lot of money. And, and, but yet people, we don't give them that second chance. That's what perspectives is all about. That's what this, this podcast is all about is seeing that other side of the story that we don't see, seeing the other side of the coin that we don't choose to, uh, to flip. But here's my, here's my two cents on that. When we see something in the news, like, you know, so-and-so, uh, you know, committed this horrible murder. Um, and then we, you know, we do some research, find out they grew up in a bad home and a bad neighborhood. And, you know, we can kind of empathize a little if, if right. we choose to, but I feel that when that's just on the news or it's just something that's completely not even related to you, you can feel like that, you know, but God forbid, I don't wish anything bad upon anybody, but if yeah. something was ever happened to you personally, like if something unhorrible un was to happen to someone who you love or someone who, you know, I just feel like as human beings, we wouldn't resort to that. We wouldn't say like, mm, but you know, they come from a bad history. We'd be like, of we'd course. be angered. We'd be angered and ready to, you know, yeah, you know, have some some hateful, hateful. Yeah, that's our humanness. We, we, yeah. we, we like, of course, it's natural to be like f you and like the hate comes out and the, yeah. all the words of for sure. That's normal. So and and that's the thing. Like we're, we're I'm just being fully transparent with yeah. you. Um, being human about it. Uh, one story I wanted to share was um, Jennifer Hudson, uh, who's a phenomenal singer. She had a, a horrible situation where um, I think it was her her sister's husband who had come in and you know committed these horrible acts. Oh killed, yes, I remember that. Certain members of her family, and obviously for a while she was she, obviously she was torn. But then she was interviewed about it later, and she said, you know what, like. I can't, I'm not mad at him. I can't blame him. That's what he knew. He didn't grow up with that right. life. He grew up with that. So, and that's, that's interesting to see, you know, I mean, like I said, God forbid, I would never wish this upon anybody, but it's interesting to see how she grew out yeah. of that situation and how she learned from that. Right. Well, also if I can say too, like the only difference between us and them is that they got caught. There's so many people that have never been to jail or prison that have done illegal things and have just not been caught. One eye-opening, just one example, when I went into jail and the facilitator had asked, so it was this exercise and you basically step to the line. So it, it basically demonstrates if you agree to the statement or not. And one of the statements was, I've driven under the influence of alcohol, you know, while operating, uh, well, driven under the influence of alcohol. Almost all of the volunteers, I didn't for the record, but almost all of the volunteers stepped forward. And just that alone, that's right. like, that's the difference between you in jail and you right. being looked at as someone as a criminal and someone that should be pay and be punished versus everyone else. That is a very interesting perspective. Do you, but do you still think that there's a level to a crime? I know, I know that, you know, driving, driving impaired can lead to other things that can yeah. view some, like there's someone who drives in, you know, impaired and just gets pulled over, gets a ticket, right. someone who drives and fortunately, you know, hits somebody else and whatnot. Um, do you think there's levels to it? It's interesting you bring this up because what's helped me in this is Kabbalah. I don't know if you know about Kabbalah. It's a, um, if you, you want to call it a technology, it doesn't matter what background you come from or religion, if you prescribe to that, it gives you spiritual tools. 
to grow. And that's really helped me look at someone's actions and even my actions, either as ego-based or soul-based. So if I have any judgment towards someone, no matter what the level of crime or whatever they've done, it's still coming from a place of ego. And it's taken something to it takes something in general to work with people in prison because you have to let go of some level of judgment, right? As is. For me, being in that, growing up in that lifestyle, people that were in protective custody and just, I don't know if you know this, but I'll, I'll share this for people that are listening too. When you go into jail, you're either put in general population, which is which you should go, or protective custody. Protective custody is more for rapists, pedophiles, gang members, people of high profile murders. They go there to... Pr- keep them in, in protection. However, people in PC, as they call it, are looked at as low compared to the general population. So I had this opportunity to go in jail and either be in general population or on protective custody, on the protective custody range. And I remember going there going, hmm, do I go there or do I go, go A or do I go B? And I said, mm, I'm going to go general population. And I realized that was still my judgment of people in protective custody. Right. And what hit me that night was, but Jess, why is it okay to support a man that has killed 10 people and not a guy that's raped a child? That's still judgment. And that's still coming from ego. And I know the humanist, trust me, I know because as a mother, as I'm like, "Eh," there's certain crimes that just cross personal boundaries and boundaries are healthy and, and fine and normal. And when I look from a spiritual perspective, it was coming from an ego base. So for me, it's how can I operate more from a soul base and which is love. So how can I operate more from love? And that's what, you know, flip the script is about, like operating from a place of love and showing these guys how to operate from a place of love instead of ego. Amazing. Um, Have you, have you watched Joker? Yeah, I did. The the recent one. Yeah. Yes. And I want to talk about that because. I like to get your thoughts on it, but I like to share mine. Sure. Because I think that that's a very important movie to see, especially in in you know where we're currently at today's world. Yeah. In today's world with mental health, you know what this um you know I understand I understand under, see and the, and that's what this show is all about: seeing things from both sides. Yeah. And then kind of picking which where you want to be, or even not even picking where you want to be. So, anyways, with this movie, I under, I knew walking in that there's a lot of controversy. Um. So basically what I got from this movie was that it shows the inception of what causes someone to commit these horrible acts. Right. I mean, this movie shows a man who was ostracized from society. It shows a man who was treated like crap from birth, you know, even before he came into this world and how he, his society basically pushed him to become this evil individual. And, you know, the whole time I'm watching, I'm like, man, like it's not this guy's fault. It's really like, yes, at the end when he becomes this, that he be he, he commits these horrible, terrible right. acts. But you know, the entire time I'm watching him, like these people that have gone on and to commit, you know, these terrible murders and whatnot. This is why. This is what happened. This is why they became those people. Yeah. And I'm hearing, you know, a lot of people saying this movie. We sh- we should not watch this movie. It's this is not a story. This is not good for our children. And I'm like, but this is the truth. And it kind of it kind of lets me know that people just don't want to hear the truth. People sure. don't want to hear, you know, what's what's really going on. Like yeah. you'd like it, it blows my mind that movie <laughs> movies like The Human Centipede are okay. But <laughs> yeah. but this story that talks about mental health and um talks about, you know, you know, being rejected from society and how that can lead to a person, 
you know, feeling like they have nothing to lose and then being this terrible person. Like I, it, it really goes to show that, um, it, it really shows, you know, the why, the why. And I think that's very important is the why is the why mm-hmm. someone does something. Yeah. And I don't know if, you know, I don't want to give any spoilers, but I don't know if you remember, but towards, um, towards the end, you'll see that he has a lot of supporters. Yeah. That was very interesting. That was very interesting. I guess it showed, I saw it, you know, as a uh, metaphor, as people saying like, hey, you know, maybe from a darker place, you're not alone. Mm. You know, you're not alone in this. So that's what I got out of it. I want to hear your thoughts. What did you think about the film and what did you get out of it? I think very similar to yours. I mean, I love the movie. I thought it was brilliant. I want to watch it again for sure. I mean, I love Joaquin Phoenix anyways and knew I had to see it regardless of what people said. And... I agree. Like, I think, again, it reminds me of flip the script in, in telling people's stories, right? Not to like, say like, Hey, I'm excused from anything that I've done because Joker committed, you know, some very serious acts there, but to get an insight onto why he is the way he is, I think is very important. Um, And that's why I so believe in, in story, story sharing and speaking your truth and speaking up and speaking out. But the the story i think we could use more storytelling like that and i and i think the way that the movie was done was very brilliant like not just from the storyline but even the way it was shot and the cinematography and and the way it was directed and and i, I don't know what else to say about it like i just i i loved it and very similar thoughts to you yeah no i thought it was beautifully done but at the same time i'm watching the movie i'm like okay i can understand why people have a problem with this you know, I, I I get it. You know, I, I like I said, I although I think we should go watch it, I yeah. can still understand why somebody would not like it. I think that's that's reality for you, and you know, we you touched on it. Like people aren't comfortable with it. Like we are creatures of comfort, and it's easier to avoid the things that that trigger us that we don't want to. Right, even with if we look within ourselves and our own shadows, it's easier to just bypass it and just forget about it instead of actually doing the work and facing things head head on. And that's why I think the 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 film is very important because it allows us in this point in time to evaluate like what's happening in the world today instead of just like you know like let's pass over it like it doesn't exist, but it's very very real, right? And and I tell people this all the time, like. Yeah, sure. I talk about love and light and all this stuff, but reality is you need to deal with the darkness first in order to get to the light, right? You can't paint on a on a already painted canvas. You need a clean canvas to start with. And yes, it's very, very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable. It's not our human nature to go deep into our shadows and to do the work and to be triggered and to reflect on things, but it's the work that we need to do so that we can come out on the other side and get the lesson. We can learn. Now we can give back from that place. So, yeah. Amazing. You know, you, um, you know, just going back to, you know, the going into prisons, I know that you've been, you know, going into prisons quite often, speaking to um, a lot of the inmates. Uh, any, what is, what has been your biggest takeaway from this? What have you learned the most from going into these places and meeting with these people? Because, I mean, I guess, you know. What's the biggest thing I've learned from going in there? Yeah. <sighs> Jeez. The biggest thing I've learned. I, See, because nothing surprises me. Nothing surprises me going in there. I think the biggest thing, the biggest thing that I've received or I've realized. Both or either or. The biggest thing I've received is is just love back. 
you know, love back. That's the, that's what, you know, I was saying earlier, I get so much more back from them being able to do this work. Um, in realizing something going there, I would say how similar their stories are, like not their personal stories of their experiences necessarily, but their, or let me say like their, their crimes, but how they grew up and also just like the humanness and how they just want to be heard and they just want to be accepted like anyone else. You know, at the end of the day, we're like, we're all human beings. Like there's so much like us. They're no different than us. And that's what I want people to see. And, and like I tell them, sometimes I wish there's a camera here, like broadcasting so they can see like, you guys are just completely freaking normal. Like every one of them out there, right. Dealing with our shadows and our problems and all that stuff. You're just behind bars. That's it. And you were caught. It's no difference. Perhaps we can get in touch with CBC about uh, starting starting something about that. That'd be cool. Um, So I, I know that also with flip the script, you have your in partnership with something called street to the stage. That's our program. Yeah. From the streets to the stage. So that's the actual. Oh, that's the name of the actual story sharing program for them. Okay. Got it. Got it. Okay. I would actually like to niche down to working with former gang members and drug dealers, you know, because being a criminal could be so broad and that's, that's personal passion. So that's the direction that I'm looking in. Do you think you found your purpose? Definitely. Definitely have. It's come full circle after everything that I've been through and being with a gang leader who was my husband for technically 14 years and being that lifestyle and now being able to give back, you know, in this way and not have any resentments towards men or, you know, someone that's committed a crime and, you know, give them love. I always feel like I always get quotes from people and I always see quotes on Instagram and wherever. Not all of them stay with me. Some of them stay with me for about a day to a week or whatever, but not all of them stay with me. One quote that really like stuck me, stuck with me, or at least planted a few seeds in my head when I was a kid was, um, be the change you wish to see, you wish to see in the world from Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi. Yeah. Um, just recently in the, in, in the past year, there's another quote I'd say would kind of be a little bit more, not an, not an updated version of that, but a more niche version of that. Okay. Um, it was a quote that I saw is, uh, be who you needed when you were younger. Hmm. Um, and that's something I've been living by, you know, I've been, um, you know, I've, I've been doing a lot, you know, with the, with the community and speaking to a lot of high schools, my old high school, uh, my universities and speaking to a lot of students and helping them with, um, you know, you know, guidance and career and hope my goal is to help them, you know, you know, receive some information that I didn't have when I was in their situation. Um, something that I've learned and to hopefully calm their nerves down and to, you know, give them less anxiety because there's so much anxiety I've had. In oh, years yeah. And I wish it didn't have. But I want to ask you with that quote, um, who did you need when you were younger? Needed someone to confide in. Needed an older sister. Needed someone to say it's it's going to be okay. And that this, everything, all the thoughts that you have are, are normal. And someone that would have talked straight to me, you know, after everything that I was going through and like, no, like not just like, Hey Jess, I think like, no, like seriously, give me like a come to Jesus talk. Like, 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 you know, tough love. That's what, that's what I needed when I was younger. And do you think you are, do you think you are that person now for someone else? For sure. Yeah, definitely. Although when I do the work that I'm doing now, I don't think of like, let me be the person who I was, who I needed when I was younger. Um, I haven't looked at it at that angle, 
but I've definitely, I definitely know that I've done that for people. And, um, actually I started off, you know, now that I'm working with men, I, I work with men now, but I used to work with women and, you know, I spoke to women who have been abused. I've speak, uh, spoken to girls in high school and, you know, spoken at city hall and domestic violence events. And it's just something that doesn't resonate with me right now. Um, right. For me, living on purpose is working with these men. Right. Um, and, and what about with your children? Like, what is it that, um, I mean, cause I'm, I'm, I'm sure that your, your kids are hearing these stories and they're well aware yeah, definitely. Of, what, of what you're doing. Um, how do you think, you know, whatever that it is that you've been through in your life has shaped your, your methods of parenting and how you, you know, how, how you parent your children? So my three kids right now, they're all teenagers. They're, they're right. 13, 15, 17. And the oldest is a little bit challenging to see her. You know, I totally see myself in her, right. And in, in the way she acts and, and all that stuff. I, because of my experience, I know that I, you know, tweak my parenting and, and, um, a bit, but I feel like I'm not as rigid as I thought I would be. Like, I don't bring that necessarily tough love to the extreme. It's more of coming from a place of, of love and not being as strict, not to say I'm being, being her friend, but, um, being very transparent with them as well. You know, my parents tried to shield me from things and not tell me certain things growing up. And I feel like telling the truth is really important. So as much as these details that I share with you or other people might hurt them because it's talking about their dad, right. I think it's really important because they're going to find out somewhere. Right. And, you know, even the other day, I don't know if you saw my Facebook live, but I was saying, cause my book is coming out. Right. And I said, I felt like a fraud before the release because I did a book campaign last year and towards the end of the year, I had thoughts of taking my own life and people don't see me as someone that would, you know, like, oh, she's got it all together and all figured out and healed. But I told people like, this is what growth looks like. This is what healing looks like. So for people that are listening too, it doesn't mean that you're going to take one course or go to one healer and all of a sudden everything is perfect. This is a journey. Like my attack, what my husband did happened almost 10 years ago, you know, nine and a half years ago. So I'm still on this journey. I'm still figuring things out. So don't feel like you need to have it all together. Um, but yeah, going back to my kids, they're good. I, I, I told them as well. Like I, I said, I, I had these feelings and that was tough for me, but I knew they had to hear it. And I think it gives them permission to then have their own conversations. Right. So speaking my truth helps them speak their truth. That's beautiful. It's amazing. And, and it's amazing that you say that, you know, um, I, I grew up in a way where like my parents always try to make it seem like they were perfect to me. Mm. You know, they didn't want me to see the, the, the you any know, breakdowns. Any and breakdowns. <laughs> I mean, I did see them all the time, but they didn't want me to see them. They would try so hard to, to, to hide that from so me. So like no fighting? No, I'm, no, I can't <laughs> say I didn't see that. <laughs> Definitely saw that, but it was just, they, they would kind of make it seem like, oh, like you didn't see anything. That was, that mm. was nothing. That was, you know, and it's, 
Uh, and, and that's the thing, like even with this, with the podcast, I want my parents to be listening to these interviews and hearing stories from people who they don't come in contact with on the daily. Right. And, you know, not, that's just one example of who I want to hear this. I want everybody to hear this because I want everyone to hear your story because I want them to see themselves in your story. And if they don't see themselves in your story, I want them to see how they can relate to someone who has mm. come from a completely different life. And even if they can't relate to it, at least they can leave with new knowledge. So yeah. like, there's always something to take away from For it. For sure. So... Well, I guess what I wanted to, uh, you know, the last point I wanted to talk about was actually what I thought I'd start off with. So it's, it's amazing this, uh, this, uh, it's come full circle. It's come full circle, but joy is your only job. Tell us about that. So if you're talking about the book, I changed the name of the book title. Oh, okay. It's not, so it's not joy is your only job anymore. I just made that decision recently. So it's actually flipped the script. Okay. Right? Makes sense with branding, right? Sometimes full you, circle. you got a brand. <laughs> yeah. Full circle. And, uh, the subtitle, which sounds funny if I say it, but you'll, it'll make sense when you see the book cover, but it's dear husband. Thank you for trying to kill me, which is the title of my TEDx talk. Right. So that's a story. It's a memoir sharing basically all the details, because even when I shared it with you today, there's so many, as you can imagine, so many moving parts to what I went through and, you know, from 15 to now. So I share my story, but more importantly, it's the message, the the lesson that I learned. And for me, it's forgiveness and being able to turn all that, all of that pain into something beautiful and, and a way to give back. Um, Cause I think we're here to serve humanity. And this is what I found through my journey. And I share how I was able to turn things around. So hopefully it inspires other people, but I didn't write the book and I think no one should ever write a book to, you know, please anyone or to prove anything. It's really about speaking your truth. And if someone resonates with that, then cool. If not, that's cool too. And how do you plan once is, I'm hope I'm guessing this book is almost ready. Yes. It's almost, it's very soon. Very soon. Very soon. Um, so once is, but, and don't worry, you have uh you definitely have a supporter in me. So I'm Thank definitely going to be uh, buying that book. Um, I want a physical version though. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and I want it to be signed too. Sounds good. Done deal. <laughs> so, um, I want to know, um, is there a specific audience that you, that you wish to reach with this book? Yeah. So it's the guys that I work with. So anyone behind, I mean, it's clear that it's, it's for men that are incarcerated or any guys that have criminal history or, or who are going through addiction, but in general, it's anyone that is going through adversity, like, which is all of us. Right. But I think for me, it's more of a target audience of someone that is going through like deep, deep adversity and feels like they're the underdog that feels like they have no voice that feels like they don't matter and feels like there's no hope. Like, you know, there are people that are handed like kind of like a silver spoon when they basically come out of their mother's womb. Like they have the finances, they have a good life and everything. And that's not who my audience is, is people that are really going through like deep, 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 dark struggles, rock bottoms, like, you know, the extreme of circumstances. Yeah. Men, women, doesn't matter. Um, so we, we covered a lot today, Jessica. Um, you covered know, a lot. A lot, a lot, quite a bit. <laughs> and like you said, it all came back full circle. It all came back to flip the script, yes. which was, you know, your, your initiative, which is the title of your book, which also encompasses your entire story. So I think uh, that's that's a great way for us to kind of, you know, come come all, all together full circle. Yep. Um, so I want to end this off and I want to thank you for your time. What is it that you want to leave us with? Your last your last, uh, your last points with us. What do you, what do you want to let the audience know before we, uh, before we go today? Just speak your truth. 
whatever your truth is, don't be afraid of it. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't feel guilty about it. It's so important to speak your truth. And everyone has a story and you just never know who you're going to inspire with that story, even if it's one person. And there's a lot of people that will never, ever, 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 ever say anything and you'll never know. But just putting your message out there, you will inspire somebody. So always speak your truth. Wonderful. Amazing. Thank you, Jessica. You're welcome. Thank you. Kabil. It was quite, quite a pleasure having you. And um, I, I, I wish you best of luck and I will Thank continue you. to support the movement. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you all for tuning in to this week's episode of the Finding Perspective podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode and learned something new, please hit subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and family. To stay up to date with all things Finding Perspective, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Finding Perspective Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at underscore Kapil Guy. Hope you have a great week. Until next time.